seriously popular. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The former nurse, Lucy Letby, has been found guilty of murdering seven babies and attempting to kill six others at the Countess of Chester Hospital. Between June 2015 and June 2016, babies who seemed to be doing reasonably well would suddenly collapse. Lucy Letby was the common factor. The verdicts make the 33-year-old Britain's most prolific baby killer. This was a podcast about one of the most anticipated criminal trials for years. It's now a podcast about one of the worst serial killers in modern times. At 12.52pm on Friday, August the 18th, 2023, we brought you the news that a neonatal nurse was guilty of killing babies in her care. After a trial lasting for over 10 months and more than 110 hours of painstaking deliberation, the jury decided that Lucy Letby murdered seven babies at the Countess of Chester Hospital and she tried to kill six more. She was cleared of two further charges of attempted murder and the jury could not reach verdicts on six further allegations. I'm Liz Hull, Northern Correspondent for the Mail. I've been in court throughout and have reported on the case as it developed. And I'm Caroline Cheatham, a broadcast journalist. Every week we've examined what's happened and brought you the details behind the headlines. This is the trial of Lucy Letby. So Liz, we know about the verdicts now. We know about the drama and the emotion from court after a trial lasting 10 months and after hours and hours and hours and hours of jury deliberation. We do know that Lucy Letby will now be sent to prison, probably, for the rest of her life. We'll know when she is sentenced, what the tariff will be, and if there might be a whole life tariff on her sentence. But we know she will go to prison for a very long time. And we also know that she will be known as one of the most prolific serial killers in British history. Yeah, so Caroline, in this episode, we thought we'd talk a bit more about what we do know about Lucy Letby and about how this apparently ordinary young woman with an unremarkable upbringing went on to commit these terrible, terrible crimes. Welcome to episode 52, Vanilla Killer. So let's go right back to the beginning of her life. She was born the only child of John and Susan Letby. 
That was on January the 4th, 1990. Now, the couple are from Hereford. They got married five months before she was born and they bought a semi-detached house in a cul-de-sac in the town. And in fact, Liz, they still live there today, 33 years later. Yes, they do. And her dad actually worked for most of his life as a retail manager of a furniture shop in the town. And Lucy Letby herself attended the local state comprehensive, which was called Alestone High. And it was there, actually, that she decided she wanted to work with children. And she chose her A-levels with child nursing in mind. Yeah, we heard that in the trial, didn't we? That that was part of her defence, actually, that she was committed to working with children and had chosen those subjects because of that commitment. And her mum and dad were really proud, we heard in the evidence, Mm. that when she passed her exams and became the first person in their family to actually go to university, and she took up her place at Chester And in fact, so proud that they put a notice in their local paper when she graduated. Yeah, there was a picture in the Hereford Times, that's their local paper, of Lucy Letby in a mortarboard and gown. Underneath the caption said, Lucy Letby, BSc Ons in child nursing. We are so proud of you after all your hard work. Love, Mum and Dad. So the evidence that we heard throughout the trial, really, and in fact, by the fact that Mr and Mrs Letby were in court every day of this trial showed that, you know, she was a loved only child throughout her life. But we did hear some texts that she exchanged with colleagues where she'd hinted that she sometimes felt smothered by her parents and guilty at moving away from them. She said they missed her and they hated her living alone. Do you remember she had the two cats Tigger and Smudge that she lived with. But they were worried about her living alone. And she actually described them in in a text message that we heard in court as suffocating at times. And like you said, Caroline, they were there every single day. Mm. Mrs. Letby was inconsolable when the verdicts came in, sobbing that she couldn't believe it. I mean, she actually did say, you know, it can't can't be right. Yeah, you can't be serious. It it can't be right, as she, she was repeating to herself. And She was clearly the apple of their eye. In other texts that we saw in the trial, one of her friends, a doctor, was talking about how she was thinking about moving to New Zealand to work. And Lucy Letby said, well, there's no way I could do that because it would absolutely, completely devastate my mum and dad. Really, her mum and dad had only ever holidayed in the UK, going to Torquay three times a year. And this is how Lucy Letby put their relationship My parents worry massively about everything and anything, hate that I live alone, etc. I feel bad because I know it's really hard for them, especially as I'm an only child, and they mean well, just a little suffocating at times, and constantly feel guilty. So in a nutshell, what we're saying is, she was ordinary. Yeah, she she was brought up in Hereford. Actually, actually Hereford, you know, it's not dissimilar from Chester. You know, it's a small cathedral city. So she probably felt comfortable in Chester when she moved there to university. So this very ordinary person who becomes a nurse, at some point also becomes a serial killer. So we asked the police if there was anything that they found anything at all in her background that may have caused her to turn to committing crimes like that. And here's what Detective Chief Inspector Nicola Evans told us when she sat down for a chat with us. I would say she was a normal 20-something-year-old at the time and she had 
a group of friends and a family and a social life. Nothing that you wouldn't expect from somebody of her age at that point and at that time. I think the fact that she was kind of nondescript and average in work allowed her to go under the radar and allowed her to commit these offences and abuse the trust of the people around her because there wasn't anything outrageous about her. She was, you know, beige or vanilla. Interesting, Liz, there, that word, vanilla. Fading into the background, vanilla, beige, Nicola Evans called her there. And that sort of calm, controlled persona that we saw in court and that we keep hearing about, sort of emotionless person, she also behaved like that when she was arrested. When the verdicts were announced in court, you know, her mum was vocal and upset and distraught. We did see tears from Lucy Letby in court yeah. on some of the verdicts. But actually, what we were told time and time again was at every key moment in this trial, being arrested, being charged, being questioned, there was nothing. Yeah, so the police have told us that she wasn't crying or, you know, banging on the table when she was arrested saying, why are you arresting me? It must be someone else. She was very measured and she didn't appear to be struggling, given that she was someone that had never been in trouble with the police before, never been arrested before. But actually, that is in complete contrast to what she told the jury. She told the jury that, you know, the police arriving at her door at six o'clock in the morning left her with post-traumatic stress. Detective Superintendent Paul Hughes, the senior investigating officer, when he sat down and spoke to us about Lucy Letby, he told us that when she was arrested, she didn't appear to be struggling at all. She cooperated, she answered the questions, she was clinical. Yeah, this is somebody that's never been involved with the police before in her life. And she's arrested for murder. And she's, I think at the time, you know, eight murders, six attempted murders, I think it was her first arrest. And then she's brought into custody and she's subject of a warrant to further detention. And at no point did she appear to be struggling with, with anything. She was quiet. She wasn't obstructive, but she answered the questions. She dealt with everything. Um, controlled. Controlled. Yeah. We had this conversation, didn't we, Liz, about this level of control, composure, calmness, just as human beings. We were sort of saying, can you imagine, you know, I'd be screaming and shouting. And Where's the banging on the table saying, well, if you're saying these babies have been killed, I've cared for these babies, go and find the killer. Yeah. yeah. But it's not me. You know, there was none of that. You know, that comment he makes there at the end of that clip, Liz, you know, she was arrested three times. She was questioned for, I think, 26 hours, charged with 22 grave, serious, horrific offences. And, you know, there was, well, it was described that there was nothing, a sort of detachment, really. And if you think about, we've talked about this, can you imagine being arrested for anything, but for anything that you haven't done? Because that's what she was obviously saying. You'd think that you would be shouting and screaming and, you know, it wasn't me and, you know, demanding that they found the real killer. She didn't react at all like that. She was quite calm. We managed to speak to Detective Sergeant Danielle Stonio, who interviewed Lucy Letby for many of those hours at Blake and Custody Suite in Chester. 
She told us that the way that Lucy Letby spoke in the witness box when she gave evidence was very much the same Lucy Letby that spoke to her for all those hours when she was arrested. So the Lucy Letby you saw in court giving evidence, for me, was the Lucy Letby I interviewed. Her tone, her approach to answering questions, even so much as kind of the pauses that she gave as well, was very much the same. You know, some of the evidence and the the statements that we were putting to her are really, really graphic in in detail. You know, and for me, kind of the allegations in itself are are horrific. Mm -hmm. Some people would be flipping the tables, throwing the chairs, banging the doors down, saying, you know, look, you need to go and speak to such and such, you know. I shouldn't be here, you know, that this is completely wrong. Um, Whereas she was calm, she was quite cool about it, and she answered the questions She was confident, she talked, but for me there was little emotion. As Danielle says there, she talked. You know, she answered their questions, she she cooperated, she was helpful, she wasn't obstructive. We saw her give evidence in the witness box. Often, for people in this situation who are denying being involved in a crime, they don't answer the questions, they don't give evidence, and yet she cooperated, didn't she? She did, and she didn't say no comment, as she would have mm-hmm. been entitled to, and she was really happy to talk at length in quite a lot of detail when she wanted to about certain babies. But she answered their questions over many, many hours, which you know some people might think was perplexing. Why would she do that? potentially dangerous for her because she could be tripped up or questioned about it further down the line. She's a really experienced interviewer. We've got an extra episode actually with Danielle because she's so interesting. I mean, she's interviewed some of the most serious offenders, including people like Barry Burnell. But her theory on Lucy Letby was that the reason she was talking, the reason she was cooperating was because she felt the police would share more information if she gave a little bit. And that way she would get some sense of what their case was. Yeah, she wanted to know what they'd got on her. She wanted to know if they were onto her, whether they'd worked out what she'd been up to, I suppose. Danielle said she suspects that's why she was quite keen to talk at length to them. Danielle also told us, didn't she, Caroline, about the moment when Lucy Letby was charged with all these 22 very, very serious offences that she was charged Mm. with. And again, she told us about her reaction and about how she remained composed. You have to read out, obviously, the date, the baby that's involved, the allegation, and then you read out the act and section. So imagine doing that on 22 separate occasions. And after each one, she she has to acknowledge the charge. You know, you have to stand up and listen as these have been read out. You see all kinds of emotions, you know. You do do have people who immediately, the natural thing to do is to cry. Mm -hmm. You know, the natural thing is to do is to cry, and then it becomes uncontrollable. You know, you have other people who will almost just put the fingers in their ears and just completely ignore it and show no interest in it whatsoever. She has this ability to mentally switch off. You can hear more of this interview in the extra episode with Danielle, who talks us through at length what it was like to sit across the table from Lucy Letby hour after hour after hour. But what she walks us through as well in that interview was just the drama of the moment of charge. This is investigation that has been ongoing for years and years and years and they're at this moment of charge and as she explains there they have to keep standing 
you know, yeah. 22 charges and she, she has to stand throughout, you know. And it takes time to list all 22 charges. charges. Dates. You know, the names of the babies yeah. would have been read to her. You know, it was a highly charged moment. But again, as she said there, utterly calm, nothing, this mm. ability to disengage. But again, going back to what you said before about her diagnosis of PTSD from that arrest, the other thing we heard about during the trial, and this was a big moment that we've not been able to talk about yet, actually. Yeah, this is interesting. Yeah. It is because she claimed that those arrests had left her very damaged. They'd left her with hypervigilance and hypersensitivity. And we did see that in court a couple of times, it was in the witness box, that someone would walk in to the door of the court and she would yeah, get very she'd flustered. She'd shoot you a look. Or, yeah. She didn't like you walking in, did no. she? And in fact, they didn't like us walking in and out at all, actually. For good reason, you are allowed to walk in and out of a courtroom. Yeah, especially when she was giving evidence because she claimed that these two conditions of hypervigilance and hypersensitivity mm. had left her very sensitive to distractions and really unusually, I've never come across this before, yeah. but... Because of these conditions, the judge agreed that when she was giving evidence that she didn't have to walk from the dock to the witness box every day. Instead, she was allowed to sit down in the witness box before anyone else came into the courtroom, which I've never seen it before. I've it's never very seen unusual. It she should have been called to the witness box and should have walked from the dock to the mm. witness box and, and should have taken the oath like everyone else. But instead, we kind of all had to wait outside while she was stationed where she was. And while that doesn't sound like a big thing, actually, it is really highly unusual. What we're talking about really is, is controlling her environment. Yeah, her controlling behaviour and her kind of measured way of speaking. You know, sometimes when she delivered her evidence, you could almost hear her brain like the cogs whirring in her yeah. brain because she was so, like, deliberate as if she was... Lots of pauses. Yeah, lots of pauses, thinking about things. You know, you could almost hear her saying to herself, am I allowed to say this? Can I, can I say it this way? Which is was kind of a strange, cold way of delivering her evidence. It made her appear cold. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So we asked criminologist Professor David Wilson, who you might remember we mm. spoke to before on the podcast a few months ago, just to talk us through what he thought about this behaviour and her convictions. David, you joined us many months ago now, at the very beginning of this trial, when you kindly spoke to us about this particular case and you're joining us again now at the end when Lucy Letby has been found guilty. Give us a bit of your background, remind us of your criminology background. 
thank you for inviting me back. And it's lovely to be back on the podcast. I'm a criminologist, emeritus professor of criminology at Birmingham City University. My specialist areas are in murder and serial murder. And in relation to that and why you both first invited me onto the podcast with a colleague called Professor Elizabeth Yardley, I wrote an article in the Journal of Offender Profiling and Investigative Psychology about nurses who killed within a hospital setting, trying to look at the common characteristics that those nurses who would murder had. One of the most common things that we discovered was that nurses who murdered moved hospital on a regular basis. And often, can you believe this? Often their references were never taken up simply because the hospital was so stretched of star. It's interesting that you open like that, really, because if we were to look at those red flags that you mentioned, including the one you just mentioned about moving hospitals a lot, none of that fits, does it? There is the interesting feature of this case, Mm. and I Mm. would say that Letby is an outlier in terms of the research of what we know about nurses who kill. She didn't have any of the red flags, with the exception of a higher incidence of death on her shift. And as both of you are fully aware, that's sometimes a very difficult red flag to prove guilt with. People go to hospital because they're sick and sometimes very, very sick and close to death. And therefore, it could simply be a random event that there were higher incidences of death on a particular nurse or doctor's shift. And my fear was in the absence of other red flags, the jury might not have found a verdict of guilt in this case. And it does show that sometimes, you know, circumstantial evidence is enough to convince a jury and all credit to them. We should probably give some credit to the police and the CPS for building probably the strongest circumstantial case they could get, but they did a lot of forensic cross-checking medical records with text messages and witness statements to put together this fairly incredible comprehensive timeline of exactly who was where and who was on duty at exact times that before and after these babies collapsed. And really, I think that's what's convicted her in the absence of any kind of smoking gun, really. And you're quite right to draw attention to that. My fear will be that because, of course, she pleaded not guilty, because the likelihood is there will be an appeal, this won't be the end of this particular story. And can I also say when we're paying credit, and I think you're right, Liz, to have paid credit. You've been in court every single day or most of the days when the court has sat. I thought Lucy Letby was given an incredibly strong defence. I thought she was given a really, really good defence. And I also didn't expect her to give evidence. And nor did she implode as many of Mm. the, the people that I've seen in court who were accused of serial murder implode. I thought she was very good at managing her image, managing her presentation of self, trying to maintain the attitude that she was innocent and there is no smoking gun, as you rightly say. So how can you convict me of these dreadful crimes? But she wasn't particularly likeable. She didn't come across as someone that had much emotion. She was very controlled. 
I thought that there was tears, but there was only tears for one of the babies, actually. And the rest of the tears were for when her pictures of her house were put on the screen or when Ben Myers, her KC, was talking about how her life had changed and what she'd lost. She was almost robotic, actually, in the way she d- delivered her evidence. Which, just to feed into that, David, was also what the police described on arrest and interview. Cold, yeah, almost sort of removed, if you like, from the moment. And we've talked about, haven't we, David, this kind of strange behaviour where she was allowed to sit in the witness box before anyone mm. else came into the court. She said she had some kind of hypersensitivity disorder, which made her easily distracted and she didn't want people moving around the courtroom when she was sat down. So the judge was, you know, fairly sympathetic and allowed her to be sat before anyone else came into the courtroom, which I'd never seen before. I have to tell you, Liz, I'd never seen that happen in the court before. And it did strike to her need to be in control and also her narcissism. I mean, there was always a whiff of narcissism about her in terms of her presentation of self. And I did think that this was a very odd piece of behavior that probably revealed more than she expected it to. However, you know, here we are. Remember, we're now with the benefit of hindsight saying, you know, of course, let's add all these things up. Mm -hmm. But at the time, Lucy Letby didn't seem to make her colleagues anxious. She didn't seem to be suffering from any underlying personality disorder such as, say, Beverly Allett. Mm. So we've also got to remember, for her colleagues, she seemed just like another colleague. And so we're now interpreting some of these events with the knowledge that she's been found guilty. And perhaps we're now adding two and two and making five. Mm. All I would say is that, for me, this is one of the reasons why she's an outlier in terms of the research that Liz Yardley and I conducted, because... She didn't make people anxious. And that's probably one of the reasons why she was able to continue this killing cycle Mm. as long as she was able to do so. Can I ask you about the notes? So obviously we asked the police about the notes, why they were written, why they were kept. You know, it seems fairly obvious that she knew she was being investigated because they'd already spoken to her colleagues. Uh, You know, it's a small world and... They very much thought that word had fed back to her, that they were looking at her. And yet she kept everything. She kept all those documents. And I wonder from a criminologist's perspective, what that tells you about her? Well, again, a feeling of narcissism that she will be able Mm. to still avoid these notes, these post-it notes, anything that she had written being used in a way that would demonstrate her guilt. She felt that she could explain them in ways that would transcend her guilt and still allow her to maintain her innocence. Equally, I've been in courts and worked with offenders who've kept diaries in Mm. which they have talked It's amazing how many serial killers keep diaries. (laughs) You know, you'd think... They like to go back. Yeah. They like to go back, Liz. Right, okay. It's a way that they can remind themselves. It's a bit like trophy taking. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's a trophy, isn't it? If you take something that belonged to the victim, you say a watch. I mean, there was a serial killer still alive, a serial killer in Wales, who would take the watches of his victims. And, you know, those watches were a way of reminding himself of when he had killed. There have been other killers who took 
locks of hair mm. um, from the, uh, their victims. And again, locks of hair were a way that they could reconnect themselves to the moment when they've murdered. If you're writing things down, you have got a way of remembering when that event took place and your thoughts and feelings at the time when that actually did happen. And my, my sense of her is if she felt it did definitively prove her guilt, she would have got rid got of, rid of it. Yeah. And also, I was talking to a, one of the police officers today and he was saying, did she actually think that they were going to arrest her in a kind of 6am dawn raid and search her house? Was she so confident that she thought, all my other colleagues have been invited to a nice interview at Blaken Police Station and that's how I'll be treated? And I mean, remember, the investigation went on for some time. Yeah, and the yeah. longer it went on, the more confidence that she would have gained. Yeah. That there was no evidence to be able to convict her. Mm. And so that would be why she would grow confident about what had been written, what was likely to have gone down. And that's why and again, she probably kept those handover sheets, even though she had a shredder in a box bedroom, because... Why would you keep all those nursing handover sheets, the resuscitation notes for baby M? Just seems, you know, if you're being investigated, it seems crazy that they would be stashed under your bed. And there we're back into the power of the trophy. Yeah. The power of the trophy and how psychologically resonant that becomes in terms of reconnecting you with the moment that you took another person's life. And one of the things that's never really been explained even yet is, you know, why she did what she did. Because she pleaded not guilty, there was no mm. mitigation, mm. really, was there? No. There was nothing to explain why she might have behaved as she had done. And that's one of the other things that, of course, is very difficult to make sense of, other than I got the impression that she had a bit of a hero complex. She liked the power. She liked yeah. the control. She liked to be seen as dealing with complex cases. She liked the sense in which even if the baby died, she still got praise because it had been a complex case. Yeah. And I think this is a, a very, very odd woman that we're dealing with and an outlier. One of the things that came up was um, just how big a breach of trust this was for the other nurses on that ward. And I think your own experience, David, is quite poignant here about your own grandson because these yeah. nurses on these wards are superhuman they're absolutely amazing so to have breached that level of trust is even makes it worse doesn't it oh it totally does that's why nurses and doctors are given the status they are given in our culture because of the superhuman efforts that they will go to and because of the trust that we place in them to do no harm and you were drawing attention there to the fact that my grandson, Ronan, was born just a few weeks after Letby went on trial. And he was born two and a half months prematurely. So I got to know all about neonatal units and the work that went on and the, the women. And it was all women in the neonatal unit where Ronan was being nursed. And, you know, my admiration, my total admiration for what those women did mm. to make sure that Ronan survived. He was just this tiny fleck of humanity, totally covered in tubes. It was almost unbearable as I watched him breathe in and breathe out again. 
And those women gave me confidence, my son, my daughter-in-law, confidence. They knew what to say. They knew what, how to behave. They were just absolutely angelic. And all the time that was happening, my son happens to be a psychologist. I was saying, you know, I sometimes find this unbearable, not just because of watching Ronan fight for his life, but knowing what's happening mm. in court with Lucy Letby. And so it's the one thing that I take away that's positive from all of my research, uh, Caroline and Liz. You know, there are very few nurses who will kill in the circumstances that let be killed. Mm -hmm. And I tend to want to remember instead those wonderful nurses that I'm tearing up as I say this, those wonderful nurses that made sure that my grandson survived. And I want to think about them rather than her, to be perfectly honest. And we know from chatting to the police officers that, you know, a lot of the nurses who were witnesses have struggled to believe that one of their own could have done this to the point, you know, where they were still hoping that she was innocent for a long time because they were manipulated on a huge scale and had, you know, she pulled the wool over their eyes, texting them theories of why a baby might have collapsed immediately after the shift and suggesting natural causes for why a baby died and why would they think anything other than she was being genuine so it has been very difficult for them i think well you know they are secondary victims in her crime because obviously we've got the babies themselves the parents and grandparents of those children but we've also got the nurses that she worked with they are mm. also her victims because they were unable to stop her for 12 months and therefore, they also will be feeling damaged and worried about trusting their own instincts as well. And so I, I hope that everybody in that hospital and in particular in that unit is given the kind of support that they need mm -hmm. to be able mm -hmm. to move on from this. You know, look, my research was about nurses who killed in a hospital setting. And between 1977 and 2009, Throughout the Western world, I found 16 cases. Mm. That's how rare this is. Yeah. Yeah. That's how very, very rare this is. And so we also have to put it into the perspective that all those nurses working in our NHS doing an extraordinary job are trying to help and to save, not to harm mm. and kill. Thank you, David. Yeah, thank you so, so much. much. Oh, you're very welcome. And congratulations again. I hope the success of this podcast means that you will think about doing the same for another high profile case that needs to be explained to the public. Well done to the two of you. It seems to me that what you have done in this podcast is reinvent court reporting, which I think is, as a criminologist, I think is very important. And unless the public know about what happens in our courts, then they will simply ignore the courts and ignore judicial decisions. So many congratulations well, thank for you. the pair of you. Yeah, thank you for um, saying that. <laughs> well, you're very welcome. So, Liz, today in Manchester Crown Court, we're all back there today, of course, for the sentencing of Lucy Letby. Now, what's going to happen? It will probably take all day because yeah. this morning we're expecting victim impact statements to be read out to the court. 
We've talked about them before, but they are a really important part of the process, aren't they? Yeah, it's the first time, really. I mean, obviously, we've heard from some of the mums and dads in statements or a couple of them gave evidence in the trial. That's quite specific in relation to what happened on a certain day or to their baby or at a certain time. These are really the first time that they get the chance to have a voice and explain to the court and explain, ideally, to Lucy Letby, the perpetrator of these crimes exactly how she's devastated their lives. Lucy Letby is joining, if you like, a growing list Mm -hmm. of really serious criminals refusing to come out of their cells for sentencing. Actually, Lucy Letby refused to come out of her cell for most of the verdicts. But we have an indication that she's not going to be there today. She's not going to hear it. Ben Myers has already said or told the judge that his client won't be coming out of the cells to listen to those victim impact statements or the sentence that the judge, Mr Justice Goss, hands down today. You know, she's, she's in company with people like Levi Belfield, mm. the brother of terrorist Salman Abidi, Hasham Abidi. He didn't come out of his cells no. for the whole trial. For the whole trial, no. And uh, Thomas Cashman. Most recently, the, of Yeah, course. recently, the killer of Olivia Pratt-Corbell. It seems to be a trend of very serious criminals that just don't want to face the music, essentially. That's what they're trying to avoid. Now, the government are trying to change the law. They're trying to force these offenders to do this, perhaps by adding time onto the end of their sentence. But obviously that doesn't apply in this case because the likelihood is that Lucy Letby will receive a whole life order, which basically means she'll never be freed. There can be no extra punishment that the judge gives her because obviously you can't add any more time onto a whole life order. We managed to sit down with Sarah McNeil, who is a law lecturer at the University of Salford, who walked us through a little bit about where these whole life terms have come from and what the purpose of them was. So a whole life term is where somebody will never be released from prison. So essentially, they will spend their last day on this earth in prison. And it was introduced in 1983 by the Home Secretary at the time, Leon Britton. What was the reason for for them being brought in? Because judges can set a tariff anyway. So yes. did, was this needed? Well, they were brought in because previously there was an indeterminate sentence. Then they would be reviewed and released when suitable, and that decision was made by the Home Secretary. But if you look at that from a political perspective, when we've got a general election coming up, that mm-hmm. could be quite problematic. So it's much fairer for a judge to make this decision. Yeah, because you don't want politicians keeping infamous prisoners in jail to score votes essentially (laughs) yeah that's exactly Mm. right yeah Mm. can you walk us through what sorts of defendants prisoners who tend to be given a whole life term yeah the types of murders that will get this sentence are your most very serious so it might be murder of two or more people Mm. two or more adults it might be murder of a child with sexual or sadistic conduct it might be a murder for racial or religious motives and that certainly applies to thomas mayor who murdered joe cox there's obviously a political that's right for that killing yeah so we're looking at the most exceptionally serious murders, but also within that the judge will take into account the aggravating and the mitigating factors. So for aggravating factors, they will look at things that make the crime even more serious. Right. So going armed with a firearm. That's right. One of the things in this case, of course, is the breach of trust. Her job is to look after the babies in her care and, mm-hmm. of course, 
look what's happened. Mm. Um, equally, other things that are aggravating are the level of premeditation, having a vulnerable victim. So yeah. again, your baby. Yeah, yeah, that that ties in. But they're rare, aren't they? Yes, yes, they are fairly rare. There's about 66 people in prison in England at the moment on a full life term. And, and Wayne Cousins is a slightly unusual case because he's an exception because he hasn't got multiple victims. But when you talk about breach of trust, Caroline, he was obviously a police officer mm. and used his position That's right. to abduct and murder Sarah Everard. And, yeah. and that was one of the reasons that was given for him receiving a whole life tariff. Now, in this case, Letby has murdered multiple vulnerable um, babies I can't really envisage a situation where Ben Myers, Casey, her barrister, is going to be able to argue against her receiving this whole life term. Sarah McNeil from University of Salford, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. So that's it for episode 52. We'll actually be releasing an extra episode later on today just to bring you that sentence, which we think will be imposed by the end of the day. So look out for that extra episode of Lucy Letby's sentence in your feeds later on. You can catch more of our post-verdict episodes on Mail Plus or wherever you usually get your podcasts. You can give us a rating and you can share the podcast. You can also follow me at Liz Hull or send us an email at thetrialoflucyletby at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lucy Letby Trial or follow me at Radio Caroline. See you then. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.